Advancements in the medical field are giving nurses faster, more effective results than ever before. They should expect the same from their education, too. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format allows you to set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move faster through your program. So the faster you move, the more money you save. When you're ready, we'll be here. Visit capella.edu for a trial course at no cost to you. Capella University. Don't just learn, learn smarter. Hello, my name's Marcus Speller from the Football Ramble and welcome to the Mixer Podcast. This is the fifth episode in an eight-part series to coincide with the release of The Mixer, a book written by one of our panellists, Michael Cox. The story of Premier League tactics from Route 1 to False 9 is, of course, out now in hardback, ebook, and audio book. This is to coincide with the Premier League's 25th season. The book charts the story of Premier League tactics over that period, and Michael will be joining me in each episode. Hello, Michael. Hello, Marcus. And we're saying hello again to Tom Williams of AFP. Hi, Tom. Hi, Marcus. And our focus today has moved on to the subject of wingers. Michael, this is a topic close to your heart. Yeah, I fancied myself as a winger when I was... uh... A young boy. Uh, I had a turn of speed and I could cross and that was pretty much it. And in those days, if you could do those two things, uh-huh. you were quite useful on the right of a 4 4 Absolutely. That, that was always my position, number if, seven. If it was good enough for Mark Overmars, it would be good enough for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no doubt we'll mention uh, that, that Dutch winger in, in a short while. Um, Tom, any particular favourite wingers immediately? Like Michael, I consider myself a winger. I used to play on the left but I was a, a right-footed left winger, so a sort of front ribbery Overmars, uh, Robert Perez type. Uh, and that came, that came in later, of course, in the English game. That kind of idea of the inverted winger. Yes, yeah. Well, I suspect that's probably something we're going to we go on and, and, and talk about. But in terms of um, favourite wingers, um, yeah, I mean, generally the left wingers: Ryan Giggs, uh, mm-hmm. Mark Overmars, um, David Ginola, um, Robert Perez, who, who tended to play on the left at Arsenal, mm-hmm. um, Konchelskis. I think you know Konchelskis gigs uh, that that the first Man United team that won the league and then won the the league and the FA Cup the season after and I think when you think back to that team obviously we remember Cantona and and, and his influence but you know the, the sight of Giggs and Konchelskis herring down the wings was you know was their real calling card and then you know that, that the Newcastle team under Kevin Keegan they were very sort of winger focused you know Ginolara on one wing and, and Keith Gillespie on the other um I think that was probably the golden age for Premier League wingers because back in those days if you were a left-footed winger you played on the left and you got to the bar line and put a cross in and if you were right-footed you played on the right and did the same thing whereas now we you know we have the inverted wingers and, and, and wingers these days tend to play in all different sorts of positions you know they play behind a number nine or as a false nine or something whereas back in the day if you know if you were a little skinny guy with a trick and a turn of pace you would be <laughs> on your wing and you'd get past the fullback and you know you'd get the ball in the box. Very much so and, and you've mentioned a fine collection of wingers there Ryan Giggs leaps to mind of course one of the first ones you said. And here's a man who has seen the evolution of tactics throughout the league's history. And, of course, under Sir Alex Ferguson, who reinvented so many teams and and gigs ended up playing as a more sort of deeper player in the centre. But in those early days, and for a long time, Michael, he was an out-and-out winger. And great pace and great flair to him. And was so exciting. One of the early stars of the Premier League era, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, if you go back and look at the early Premier League games, we're so used to almost every attacking player being really fast these days. But at the time, Giggs was quite a phenomenon in Mm. terms of how quick he was. And uh, just, yeah, the extent to which he changed his game over the course of his career is quite remarkable. 
Um, he was so direct early on, so good at beating players. He was a funny kind of dribbler. He could do the tricks, but he was also just so good at knocking the ball past players and running onto it. And, mm. you know, as Tom was saying, a lot of Manchester United's attacks at that point came from getting the ball wide and just attacking down the flanks. Yeah, and, and he was so direct at times as well. As Michael says, you know, he did have a few little tricks, but not in the same way that, say, Cristiano Ronaldo would perhaps. Um, a bit unfair to compare him to maybe one of the greatest players that we've seen in recent years, certainly. But Giggs, that directness and that kind of in-and-out dribbling that he would do, and it's an obvious one to say, but the goal against Arsenal at the FA Cup semi-final, of course, that was just vintage Giggs in and out of those uh, poor Arsenal defenders. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, one of the, the sensational FA Cup goals that, that we all remember. And, and it actually came at a time when Giggs wasn't doing that all that often. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, towards the, the latter half of the 90s, his hamstring problems, you know, became more and more of an issue. Um, and there was a time when even, you know, um, in the stands at Old Trafford, he wasn't particularly popular because he was very inconsistent. And I think once he'd got over the, you know, the, those first few spectacular seasons where he scored a lot of goals, where he was very, very effective there was a period where you sort of thought you know is is he going to recapture those heights and what happened instead was that he he developed into a different sort of player you know and he ended up playing as this sort of string pulling midfielder but um yeah I mean obviously remember the Arsenal goal some of the some of the goals he scored prior to that when he was first sort of breaking into the team there was a goal at Tottenham in the 92-93 season centre-back miscontrols a high ball Giggs whips it off him nutmegs the next centre-back takes it around the keeper Drills it in from a difficult angle. Uh, there's a goal at QPR the following season at Loftus yeah, Road. Yeah. Muddy little pitch. Uh, I think Ray Wilkins and um, Ian Holloway in centre midfield for QPR. And Giggs beats about six players. And then he had this really sort of nonchalant celebration thing. Um, you know, we'd go, he'd walk over to the corner flag and do a little twizzle <laughs> of his of his in- index finger. And and he was a, a real sort of boy wonder winger, the guy yeah. who could pick up and beat you know three or four or five players. And I think I think areas of his game were 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 deficient. He wasn't a great crosser of the ball. Um, his right foot for a long time was only good for standing on. Um, and he would drift in and out of games. But I think when he was at his best, he was about as exciting a winger as, as I think Britain has, has produced when he was at, you know, when he was really at the peak of his powers. Yeah, ne- never really got on well with international football, though, did he, Ryan Giggs? Yeah, I mean, I think I think he yeah, he emerged at a slightly unfortunate time. I mean, it, Ryan Giggs was a member of the Wales team that came so close to qualifying for the 1994 World Cup. They had that pivotal last qualifier at home to Romania. Uh, November 1993 at the old Cardiff Arms Park, lost 2-1. Um, and that was quite a decent Wales team. You had Ian Rush, Mark Hughes, uh, Dean Saunders, uh, Gary Speed was, was coming through at about the same sort of time. But over the years that followed, they all faded out of the picture and Ryan Giggs ended up being the sort of figurehead of this failing team. And it was a, a historic low point in the history of Welsh football. Bobby Gould came in as manager. They had all sorts of horrible kits. They lost 5-0 to Georgia, 6-4 to Turkey... And they lost 7-1 to Holland at one point. Um, and you just felt very sorry for Giggs a lot of the time because he was clearly the best player at Wales' disposal, um, but was having to go through all these abject humiliations. And he had a club manager, Alex Ferguson, who clearly wasn't all that fussed about him turning out for Wales as regularly as possible. He famously skipped all sorts of friendlies for various different reasons. Um, and as a result, by the time he retired... He'd only got 60-odd caps. He was barely into double figures for international goals. Um, 
And so he's, I don't think the Ryan Giggs era is remembered that fondly by fans of the, of the Welsh football team, whereas Gareth Bale had the great fortune of coming through at the same time as a really exciting bunch of players who all emerged through the ranks at the same time and, and went on and achieved that fantastic success at, at Euro 2016 together. And we'll come to him a little bit later. Uh, Michael Giggs was probably a typical type of winger in those early Premier League years, certainly, although maybe his crossing wasn't as up to scratch as, as some others, but are there any others that spring to mind? Well, I think the, the Blackburn team that won the title in 94-95 with uh, Jason Wilcox and Stuart Ripley yeah. on either flanks, they were just such a kind of back-to-basics team, 4-4-2, essentially two target men up front in Shearer and Sutton mm-hmm. pretty much playing the same role. And uh, there's, there's some interesting stories actually um, from their, their training sessions in, uh, in 94-95. I hadn't realised the extent to which Dalgleish basically didn't take any training sessions. It was all Ray Harford. Mm-hmm. And Ray Harford, of course, was known for his work at Wimbledon and Luton, quite direct sides, mm-hmm. and just had them playing really direct football and only wanted them to cross from what he called the magic box, which was <laughs> the width either side of the 18-yard box. Right, OK. So no, no deep crosses. He always wanted them to hit the, hit the byline, basically, be a classic winger. And there's a good story as well about how... Uh, I think in, in March or April of that season, Dalgleish is scared that teams have basically worked out how predictable Blackburn are in terms of their crossing. And he says to um, to Ripley, eventually they're just going to show you inside. So if they show you inside, where shall I get the strikers to stand uh, for crosses from that point? And Ripley just looks at him really panicked and says, I, I don't know, I've never <laughs> been in that situation before. So they literally only knew how to play one way and that's kind of essentially what uh, what Premier League football was about at that point. That, I mean, that is extraordinary, really, if you think about the evolution of tactics and so on, which, of course, is you know what, what the book is about. The fact that a player wouldn't know to cut inside and wouldn't know what to do there, and the manager saying, well, what, what should we do? I mean, I understand the tactic that get the ball in because you've got two forwards who can position themselves well and head the ball very, very well indeed and finish. But it is it is remarkable when you look back. And that and that won them a league title, of course. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, and, and as Tom mentioned as well, um, you know, you had the Newcastle team who nearly won the title the next year mm-hmm. with Ginola and Gillespie. And they were a relatively similar side. And in fact, even just after that, when they kind of paired Ferdinand and, and Shearer up front, and it was just all about crossing. It was, you know, it's not a tactic you really see, obviously see teams crossing the ball, but you don't think of crossing sides these days with the exception of you know an Allardyce side or a Pulis side mm-hmm. certainly none of the the top teams play like that anymore as we just mentioned the theme of the book is uh, of, of course tactics and and there's a huge continental influence in the Premier League as you as you document and that resulted in the tactical development of each positions who would you say Michael that were the players that started that well, I'd say David Ginola when he signed for Newcastle. I mean, he had such an immediate impact. His first month, he won Player of the Month. It was still a point where there weren't that many foreign players in English football. And he was really interesting because, um, you know, I was amazed watching some of the videos, actually, how physically dominant he is. Mm. He used to receive the ball kind of back to the fullback, which we did. you didn't see a lot. Like a striker. You, yeah, pretty much. I mean, players were usually getting the ball on the touchlines on the run, but he was backing in. And then he could spin either way. He could go inside and shoot. He could go down the outside and cross. And I think that was maybe the start. And, and with Mark Overmars as well, they could come inside and shoot very well. That was the start of us saying, hang on, wingers have got to be a little bit better than just hitting the byline and crossing. And he was, Ginola was a player who could do either very well. He could shoot or cross equally well. And Ginola sometimes was accused of being a little bit lazy. And this was a guy who, there was that famous story when he was on the team bus and, and went to, 
light up a cigarette, and all <laughs> yeah. the players scorned him. And, and, and Kevin Keane came over and went, "I don't, I don't think we we don't do that kind of thing here." I mean, okay, fine. And then of course later on on the bus journey, they stop outside a chippy and all load up on on fish and chips and pies and all the rest of it, which was perfectly okay. But even that little um, example there, as kind of silly as it is, shows you how different foreign players would do things to British players. And actually, the Premier League, Tom, needed that foreign influence. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like you know one of the stories about. Um Arsene Wenger's arrival at Arsenal and, and banning Mars bars, and I think it was on the on the bus on the bus back down to London after after his first game at Ewood Park, and the players were all sitting at the back chanting, "We want our Mars bars," and <laughs> uh, and, and you know, and that that feels like uh, it was an age away. But then, you know, what was Paolo Di Canio getting trouble for at Sunderland banning ketchup or something? So yeah, you know, yeah. it, it seems that even though there's you know there's there's this feeling that when you know Arsene Wenger came in, things started to change. In many ways, in certain areas, there is still you know progress to be made uh, in that respect. Um, but it, I mean, it was a, a fascinating clash of cultures. I think Wenger going in at Arsenal, you know, who were this pretty well-established, tough bunch of of old pros, really, um, and coming in with you know various techniques he picked up when he was at Japan and the individualised dietary programs and these stretching routines and Arsenal players having to get up early in the morning and stretch first thing and then stretch before they leave the house and all this sort of thing and, and things that we now see as, as par for the course and when it came in it was you know completely revolutionary yeah and, and, and Michael that Arsenal side they Wenger built on that battle-hardy uh, Britishness at the back and added some foreign flair and Mark Overmars was crucial to that you know I mean got the vital one away at Old Trafford in a 1-0 win but scored so many vital goals and had so many vital contributions to that Arsenal team yeah and I think people sometimes forget how direct Arsenal were in those days you know it's relatively recently that they became a kind of possession side mm-hmm. holding the ball for long periods they were renowned as a counter-attacking side mm. at Overmars they had an Elker up front they had Ray Parler on the right who was you know a very forward thinking player mm-hmm. just running always forward with the ball um, obviously Burkamp was stitching it all together um, but Overmars I mean I must say one of the nice things about doing all this research was kind of I'd forgotten how good some players were and Overmars was one of those players yeah. I think it's probably been overshadowed maybe rightly by Pires who was you oh, know, yeah. I'd say equally fantastic maybe even better but that game at Old Trafford uh, he just ran the show mm. absolutely ran the show he had four really good chances Manchester United were playing a young lad called John Curtis at right back oh, right. who was very uh, highly regarded at the time you had a you know, torrid time against Overmars absolutely yeah and and I, I'd say I mean I don't know whether this is responsible but he never really recovered from that maybe he just mm. wasn't quite at that level but he had really you know great prospects ahead of him and Overmars was just electric the whole game and, and probably should have scored more than one mm-hmm. in fact but uh, yeah it was incredible probably one of the all time great Premier League performances I'd say yeah. considering that was the game that kind of tilted it in in Arsenal's favour for the title. And then went on to Barcelona as well, lest we forget Mark Overmars, you know, proving what a, what a great player he was. Um, one of uh, the Premier League's most famous players, of course, um, is, is David Beckham. Michael, do we consider him a winger? Uh, I'd say he probably isn't a classic winger, but uh, he was a funny one because he was just so based around crossing. Mm-hmm. And again, I think he's a funny player, Beckham, because I think his kind of fame means that to people who are not massive football fans, he's probably slightly overrated. He wasn't ever one of the world's very best players. Mm-hmm. But I think people who kind of like to consider themselves knowledgeable about football would also kind of underrate him. You know, he was incredibly effective during that 98-99 season. And mm-hmm. even though, you know, he basically had one thing that was hitting the ball accurately over long distances, he could cross, he could score free kicks. <laughs> he was a fantastic set-piece taker. Mm-hmm. And the way Manchester United played at that side, again, relatively primitive, 4-4-2, 
they had skulls, they had very good combinations up front, but they're basically about getting the ball wide, mm-hmm. attacking down the flanks. And Beckham was, I would say, probably the most important player, if, you know, certainly one of the most important players in that 99 side, which is probably one of the best sides the Premier League has seen. Yeah, I mean, his, uh, his replacement, Tom, if you like, was Cristiano Ronaldo for that number seven jersey, the famous one. And we've mentioned 4-4-2 quite a bit, you know, classic wingers, that kind of thing. But as time went on, we saw the introduction more of a 4-3-3, which is something that in this in this country, you, you expected that from Barcelona, you know, from Cruyff's dream team and so on and so forth. But someone like Cristiano Ronaldo was one of those players and always has been, to call him a winger, you, you can do, and certainly in his early days, but he's more of a forward, if you know what I mean. And th- and this signalled uh, maybe a changing in, in preferences and formations in, in the Premier League, would you say? Yeah, I mean, you know, Alex Ferguson had always been fairly tightly wedded to four four two. I mean, he'd, he'd generally play with, with a front man and, and a guy who was a bit more uh, multifaceted playing just off him. But I, I think Ronaldo's emergence and, and Ferguson's appreciation of Ronaldo's brilliance meant that he realised he had to um, rebuild the team in order to get more from Ronaldo. When he first came into the team, obviously he was given the number seven shirt and he'd play on the right quite often. But as we've seen you know, during latter years at Real Madrid, he is much happier on the left, cutting in and onto his right foot. And you look at the, the Man United team that won the three Premier League titles in a row, won the 2008 Champions League, reached the final the following year. Um, and... The front three of Rooney, Ronaldo and Tevez, who operated with a large amount of freedom. Wayne Rooney was basically sort of farmed out to the left in order to make room for Ronaldo, to give him the freedom to go and pick up the positions that he wanted to to take up. Um, and I think in many ways, you know, Ronaldo was in the vanguard of this 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 wave of of multifaceted modern forwards who are very hard to define. An awful lot of the most exciting players in the game these days, you can only say that they're forwards because they can play on the wing or they can play as a number 10 or they can play as a false nine or they can play as a central striker. Um, And I think Ronaldo was one of those. He arrived and, you know, he appeared to be a winger. He did things that wingers did. He threw stepovers, probably a few too many. He tormented fullbacks. He put crosses in. He scored the odd goal. But once it became apparent that there was so much more to his game, I mean, a phenomenal header of the ball. Yeah. I don't think I've seen anyone attack a ball as as impressively as Ronaldo. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful finisher, and as a result, now we are we are now used to this idea of a forward player not having any you know sort of set position or maybe having a starting position. Mm-hmm. Ronaldo's going to start on the left, but with the knowledge that he'll drift in. And he was one of the first players I think we'd seen in England who played and was given that sort of freedom. Yeah, and Michael, do you think that Cristiano Ronaldo and the way Ferguson used him did that change the template because it's, it's all very well for a club like Manchester United to sign a player like Cristiano Ronaldo they get the best players you know and Ferguson one of the best managers can can switch it up tactically but did that set a template for perhaps the rest of the league to say hang on maybe the four four two and the traditional wingers we have to mix that up as well if we want to if we want to challenge or, or do something in the league yeah I mean I think Manchester United's evolution during that period is really interesting I mean Ferguson made the decision that he was going to move away from four four two went towards a 4-5-1 system with Van Nistelrooy up front. Mm. But then what he kind of discovered during Van Nistelrooy's time was that moving to 4-5-1 wasn't that one man should be dominating the goals. Mm-hmm. It was that goals had to come from all over the team. Mm. And I don't think it's any coincidence whatsoever that Ronaldo's improvement and indeed Rooney's improvement to a certain extent came after Van Nistelrooy left in 2006. And that gave them the license to kind of rotate positions. It meant that uh, the goal scoring was shared between lots more players. And yeah, I mean, as Tom was saying, there's, there's 
so many of the best players in the world now can play multiple roles. They can play up front, they can play wide, they can play as a number 10. Um, and Ronaldo, I think, was just so impressive because it felt like every year he'd just add something else to his game. You know, he started out as, you know, he was quite derided, really, for his stepovers and stuff and for going down too easily. And, you know, the thought of that now is just ludicrous because I mean, when was the last time he saw Ronaldo do a trick or anything unnecessary? He's become so efficient and so uh, ruthless in terms of his goal scoring. And as Tom said, you know, he was great in the air. He became a great free kick taker. He was scoring kind of scrappy goals as well, which you don't think he would be doing in the first few seasons. It was just a remarkable evolution. No other player in the Premier League era has improved by so much from when they came to when they left. It was it was quite incredible. You know, kind kind of took it for granted at the time, but he was yeah, derided at the start and by the end he was the best player in the world. To put you on the spot quickly, is he is he the best player in the Premier League's era, do you think? I think he got to the greatest level. I think he maybe didn't quite have the longevity of some of the others, uh-huh. but I think, you know, he, he won World Player of the Year. He was the best player in the world. And mm-hmm. in that sense, he was the best player the Premier League has seen. Yes. Mm-hmm. No, in- interesting. Well, um, also, I mean, mentioning wingers earlier, becoming a bit inverted, going away from that traditional, the guy the le- with the left foot plays on the left and, and vice versa. Um, even clubs lower down the league, such as Roy Hodgson's Fulham, played with inverted wingers. I mean, Damien Duff on, on the right and would it have been Clint Dempsey, perhaps, on the other side? Well, Dempsey, they're not- sometimes Simon Davis. Simon yeah. Davis as well, yeah. It was, it was fascinating to see these trends usually start at the top. Not always, but, but usually, as, as is the case. But to see that go throughout the league with some of the sides lower down, trying out these inverted wings is quite an interesting evolution as well. Yeah, I think Fulham's Europa run in 2010 is one of the great forgotten things of the last <laughs> few years. Maybe because Hodgson's fallen out of favour and you know wasn't so popular with England, but the sides they got past on the way to that final mm-hmm. was just absolutely incredible to beat Juventus. They got past Shakhtar Donetsk, who'd won it the previous season. Hamburg as well, some really big sides. And uh, yeah, I mean, Damien Duff's an interesting one because he started out as a classic left winger mm. in the gigs mould. And then played so much on the right that he says now in interviews when he's playing five aside. In fact, there's some nice stories of him just playing five aside on his own That's and right, yeah. in uh, pitches in Ireland just because he wanted to kind of run around. <laughs> but he says he now prefers kicking the ball with his right foot, which is incredible considering how left-sided he was. But that's mm. the extent to which wingers had to uh, evolve their game. Obviously, he was still cutting inside from the right. Mm-hmm. But he had to show that he could go down the line to make sure he wasn't predictable. Um, which other players in his mould, of course, don't do. Yeah. But the fact that he could switch from being a left-footed player to, he says now, a predominantly right-footed player is quite remarkable. That really is, and of course played in that four-three-three that Jose Mourinho often played at, at Chelsea at times. Um, mentioning players becoming more sort of forward players rather than, say, out-and-out wingers. And talking about Cristiano Ronaldo, it would be remiss if we didn't mention his uh, Real Madrid teammate, Gareth Bale. Of course, uh, had a great time at Spurs. It started off as a, as a fullback. Tom went to that kind of left winger position and is now one of those sort of world-class forwards that we love watching. Yeah, I mean, when he came through at Southampton, he played at left-back. When he got into the Wales team, he played at left-back and made his debut when he was about 17. And and for a while, there was a lot of talk about where he would end up. I mean, you know, he was clearly someone who has always had extraordinary physical capacities. Mm. Um, but the thinking was, you know, might he... Might he turn into one of these rampaging fullbacks in the style of a Danny Alves or a, or a Mycon, perhaps? Um, you know, someone who just sort of motors up and down the flank all day. And we forget now, it gets mentioned every now and again, but when he first went to Tottenham, he had a really difficult time. Harry Redknapp didn't really fancy him, was always having a go at him for faffing around with his hair on the training pitch. And he only got into the Spurs team for any 
decent length of time because Benoit Suikoto got, got injured at one point. Bale went into the team, played well, finally ended that run of matches that, that he'd been on the losing side for. And then Redknapp started trying him out further forward. And, you know, of course, he had his, his great breakthrough game at the San Siro against Inter Milan when he mm-hmm. scored that incredible hat trick, completely ripped Mykon to pieces at a time when Mykon was seen as, you know, pretty much the world's best right back with Danny Alves. And then, and then repeated the dose when Inter Milan came to White Hart Lane, you know, set up a couple of goals by. by Burning past Mike on, and and then I think once he'd sort of demonstrated what a you know what an impactful player he could be, he was given more and more freedom under Redknapp and then under Andre Villas-Boas. And by the end of his time at Spurs, he was he was basically playing wherever he wanted to. He was playing through the middle um, and absolutely ripping teams to shreds on his own. And you know he's not been given quite the same freedom at, at Real Madrid. Tends to play more off the right. I mean, Rafa Benitez tried him out playing him behind the centre forward and it didn't really work. But again, he has he has become one of these multifaceted modern forwards, much like Ronaldo, who's someone who you know he, he clearly bases his, his game on quite a lot. And we've talked a lot about these great forward players who are playing on the wings. As a winger is, is obviously a, a forward-thinking position among the goals, among the assists. There's also defensive work to be done. Now, we don't associate defensive work with someone like Cristiano Ronaldo or Gareth Bale, even though their work rate is, is very, very high. But there, there was the rise of defensive wingers, Michael, if you will. The likes of Dirk Cow and even Jisung Park as well at Manchester United, who their all-round game was actually um, doing all the doggy work as well, not just having a few touches and running down the wing. They would need to get back in those systems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about the rise of attacking fullbacks already, and this was a kind of response to that, I suppose. Um, some of those big Champions League games in the mid-2000s when English sides were essentially dominating European competition... There was nothing really much going on in the midfield zone. It was very defensive in there. You had a lot of players, you know, there was the Makaleli role. There was kind of a big shift towards just being very solid in the centre of the pitch. And teams relied so much upon their attacking fullbacks that you had someone like Park Ji-sung, who probably wouldn't be a regular if Manchester United were, you know, at home to Bolton or Blackburn in a game that was, you know, all about them scoring as many goals as possible. But when it came to kind of nullifying an Ashley Cole or a Gail Clichy or, you know, an attacking fullback at any big side. Mm-hmm. Park was incredible, just was so instrumental in so many of those Manchester United uh, performances. And, of course, was very good going forward as well. You know, his his part in uh, counter-attacking goals they scored at the Emirates. Ronaldo got a famous one in the Champions League. Wayne Rooney as well scored one at the Emirates. He was not the most spectacular player. And I think probably reined his game in. You look at how he played at PSV, it was actually very exciting, a little bit of a kind of in the early Ronaldo mould of step-overs and sending the full-back the wrong way. But, it, you know, the way he adjusted his game, often when he was playing on the opposite side of Ronaldo, uh, to Ronaldo, to provide the balance, I think was really interesting. Mm. And, we, and and we see a lot of these wingers who are now all-rounders, if you like, as well. Um, someone like uh, Alexis Sanchez, who you know, great work rate at Arsenal. Um, again, would you call him a, a winger? Um, Riyad Mahrez, perhaps, for, for Leicester, Tom? Yeah, Red Myers is a bit of a throwback, I suppose. Um, I guess the, the big difference in, in his positioning is that he plays on the right. I think if he'd come through 20 years ago, in the early days of the Premier League, he would have been a left winger. Um, and his job would have been to beat the fullback on the outside and get a cross in. Whereas he's a, a pretty classic uh, inverted winger these days. Plays very wide, um, out on the right, very high up. Um, and, and can go both ways. Um, you know, he's, He can use his right foot, um, but... He, you know, his preference is to come in onto his left foot, and he's got that Iron Robin slash Messi thing of even though everyone in the stadium and everyone watching at home and everyone on the pitch knows mm-hmm. he just wants to get the ball onto his left foot and shoot, 
somehow he always manages to do it. Um, and, you know, I think that says a lot about his ability to to sow doubt in, in the mind of the opposition fullback and the opposition defenders. Because you know Morris wants to go on his left foot, but every now and again he'll go on his right foot and he'll go on the outside and then check back inside and then maybe go outside again. You look at him and Mark Albrighton and, and they're, they're about as classic a wing pairing as we've seen in English title winners in recent years with, with the one difference, I suppose, compared to traditional pairs of wingers that they play on the opposite flanks. I think the winger position is quite an obvious one that shows the development of tactics and and how that's changed throughout the years from from 20 years ago even further back to now Um, so as always to finish off Michael I I want you to to pick one player that you would say was a game changer who was potentially a revolutionary in this role in, in English football I think it's Ginola, actually. Mm. I mean, Ronaldo obviously took things to a new level, but I think he was just such an exceptional talent. He was almost unique. Maybe Bale, you could say, was in his mould. But the fact that Ginola was going both ways, I think, really threw opposition right-backs in the early stage. And I think that's when you, you had that massive shift from the Ripley and Wilcox who just didn't know how to come inside to wingers who were actually multi-dimensional could score goals he wasn't the best at tracking back generally it must be said <laughs> but apart from that he was a really good all-round attacker yeah Tom you, you would agree yeah, it's, it's hard to single one out. I mean, you know, clearly of the players we've talked about, Cristiano Ronaldo was the outstanding talent of, of the Premier League era, but, but then didn't spend that much time playing purely as a winger. I think there's a decent case to be made for Ginola. I think another one, I think the way that Arsene Wenger used Robert Pires was in a similar vein. Um, I mean, Pires didn't have the athleticism that Ginola did, but he was probably a, a slightly more inventive player, I think. He, he could play at a, at a lower pace, you know, Ginola was very much, everything was done at, at, at high speed. Um, and I think, you know, Pires was, was one of those players played out on the wing, um, on his on his opposite foot, encouraged to come inside, combined with the centre midfielders, combined with, with Dennis Burkamp, with Henri. And, and I think he was, a, you know, a really important part of the way that Arsenal team played. And lest we forget the moment, then David Ginola took his top off playing for Aston Villa to show John Gregory that he was uh, still very much ripped and, and could do it at that level. And I think that's a wonderful moment to end on. Give us a, a nice visual thing um, there. Uh, thanks very much for listening to uh, this episode of The Mixer podcast. Michael Cox's The Mixer is the story of the Premier League tactics from Route 1 to False Nines, out now in hardback, ebook, and audio book. I'm Marcus Speller. Thanks very much to Michael Cox and Tom Williams for joining me. Please join us next time for our sixth episode when we'll be turning our attention to the number 10. Hey, this is Jill from The Container Store. Oh. Is there something wrong? I just thought a virtual designer would be a cool robot. I could do a robot voice if that helps. Maybe. Hi, I am Jill. Let's design. Nope, absolutely not. Regular voice, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not good at impressions. Enjoy free virtual in-home closet design and up to 25% off closet systems with The Container Store's custom closet sale. The Container Store, where space comes from.